chapter 1, verse 20. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ wherever, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I, I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. There's probably nothing more poignant than standing upright in the grass of a graveyard and looking down into the soul opened up below your feet. Immediately in front of Kathleen was an exposed in a shallow grave. The opening measured approximately 24 inches by 24 inches by 20 inches deep. Now how do I know that? It's because the day before, Kathleen's husband, Roy, and I drove inland to the aging community of Caledonia in Nova Scotia. We traveled there to hand dig and prepare the grave site for the family's grave site memorial. But prior to leaving for our holidays to the East Coast, Debbie and I have been invited. We've been invited to stand with them in the burial of her son's ashes. Now towards the end of our stay, it became apparent that Debbie's aunt wanted us to actually oversee the rites and the committal and burial of Peter's ashes in the family's plot in that countryside graveyard. When the family had arrived that Friday morning, Kathleen almost immediately pulled me aside to show me something that I never even noticed from the day before. To the, to the left of the mound of dirt, pulled out from the excavation of the day earlier. To the left, I saw this. Since arriving that morning, Roy and I had already overlaid the mound and the, and the hole that we had dug. And we overlaid that with a couple yards of medium blue silk. And on top of that, we placed the burial box that contained Peter's ashes. Rising proudly out of the ground and overshadowing it all was the headstone dedicated to Kathleen's son, Peter James Donnelly, 1972 to 2019. 
headstone to the right of that, to the immediate right of Peter's headstone that Kathleen had asked me to read aloud with her. And headlining the top of the headstone, in bold print, was the family surname Donald. And engraved engraved underneath the headstone was the name of her first husband and Debbie's uncle, Uncle Tom, or Tommy we would call him. Thomas Tom Robert, 1944 to 2012. And then, surprisingly, immediately engraved below this was her own name, Kathleen Darling, 1951. Now, alongside that was a blank face of finished granite with no expiry date. Post action, Kathleen commented, Well, I'll bet there are not too many people alive who can say that they've looked down to read their own names on an engraved tombstone. There's a pause, and then she says, It kind of makes me feel weird inside when I look at that. The gravity of both life and death is tangible. The weight of her statement and the revelation that came as soon as I stood there amongst family members still fully alive and alongside the graveside of family members who had passed on was not lost to me. Rather happenstance, as I look at it, I have the privilege of reading and presenting the, this fourth installation from our series, out of which Paul's own muse over the glory of living for Jesus or dying and going to be with Christ where he is in heaven. As we continue Paul's letter to the Philippians, we are inviting God to excite our senses. Do you, do you trust in the spirit of Jesus to, to bring a fresh revelation of himself and to all of us here. As I concluded my introduction to the series, I shared that this journey of faith in Jesus, this journey of following him, it isn't something that is forged in a single encounter or on a single day, but it is something, as our friend Eugene Peterson has so beautifully put it, Our fellowship with Jesus is something that is formed from a long obedience in the same direction. Paul's life and faith journey with Jesus is nothing short of that. There are no shortcuts to being faithful followers of Jesus. But as Paul has so often presented, it is our day by day, our circumstance after circumstance, decision that we make to let the glory of God's life fill you. And to letting that be fully lived out through you. In whatever condition you're in, wherever you find yourself, the 
us what he's discerned about the nature of his situation. Paul seems to be agreeing with the idea that we'd be better, be truly better if I was dead. I'm torn between two decisions. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sake, it is better that I continue to live. Paul isn't trying to be glib. He's not trying to be morose. It isn't a picture of someone who's losing his self-esteem or someone who is terminally depressed. On the contrary, he's being entirely vulnerable with the realities and of the beautiful tension that is weighing on his heart. His love for Christ and his love and burden for the church. What I really love, what I really love is to be with our King, the Messiah. That's what Paul was saying. This is a man who recognizes that he's already gone through a spiritual death of sorts. This is a man who is graciously and decidedly living out of a deposit of the life and the glory that is Christ living in him. Listen with me as I read from his letter to the Galatians here. Read with me. My old self is being crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My old self Body, whether he's here on the earth or whether he goes to be with Christ in heaven, because the Savior who loves him is at home in him. He can rest because Christ is resting in him. Do you ever feel that sometimes when Christ is resting? God wants us to be much more familiar with that than we know. But still, I know that I'm with you. Even in you. I want you to see something with me and perhaps it will serve as an aspiration for us all. Paul is being 
lovingly real about his feelings and his vulnerability with his family in the Philippines. I, I don't know if you've already done the exercise yet with, with Ken or with Alan as they introduced the, the letter, but, but I asked the question, have you stopped to consider some of the figures that Paul is talking to in his letter? In my introduction to our series, we looked at the 16th chapter of Acts. Yet in Luke details, they're called to Macedonia and their first convert to the faith. Do you remember who that was? Lydia. Says the man who opened up the first series. It began with Lydia, the well-to-do merchant of expensive purple cloth. She opened her heart to the message about God's Messiah. Lydia, when she came to the Lord, she didn't just come by herself. She brought her whole household, and they were all baptized into the faith. I love that. That same chapter goes on to include the story of a certain slave girl. Remember the story of the slave girl in the region? She was traveling along with them, wasn't she? She was telling everybody to listen to these men. Listen to them. They're bringing a message from the Most High God. Well, she was prophesying out of the spirit of divination. Finally getting annoyed, Paul turned to her and he cast that spirit out. And with that spirit went all of her income she named for her masters. Well, what happened then? The boys got thrown in jail, didn't they? Because they were messing things up in the city. The letter's written to her. The letter's also written to the jailer who'd been charged with his life to watch over Paul and Silas through the night and then through a miraculous intervention of the Lord Paul and Silas led that jailer and everyone in his household into salvation. Why? Because the prison doors had literally been shaken open while Paul and Silas worshipped and prayed God in the dark of the dungeon at night. He thought that they'd all left, deserted the post, and he had to guard them with their life. He was going to take his life and they stopped them from doing it. They hadn't gone anywhere. They stayed exactly where they were put. When he realized the Lord's mercy, that jailer and his whole household came into salvation. He and the entire household had said, were baptized into the faith. Paul's letter to the Lord's family in Philippi is written to a group of intimate friends and followers of Christ who owed their newfound lives to the Lord, who answers prayers, and to Paul and his companions who risked everything to bring them the good news of God's King and our only Savior. This is a family of people who'd seen firsthand what God in His power can and does do. This is a group of intimate friends and followers.
ones who knew without any doubt, any shadow of it, that there wasn't a jail cell that could hold Paul if God determined to intervene. And here they are, reading a letter from their friend Paul in prison. So they've already seen it with their own eyes. They've felt it in their own bodies. They've heard firsthand the accounts, the stories from Paul and Silas and from the the Philippian jailer that it's God. It's God who brings hope. It's God who sets us free. It's God who opens prison doors. It's God who is entirely merciful to us. Maybe every one of them, including the entire town of Philippi, felt the ground beneath them shaking in the middle of the night. Scripture doesn't say anything to the contrary. In fact, it may even back up the claim. Oops. Acts chapter 16, verse 26, there was a massive earthquake. That's what the word says. God moved and the entire town shook. From that quote from the book of Hebrews, friends, even in our day and in our time, I want you to take part. I want you to be encouraged. God is not only shaking the earth, but he is shaking the heavens too. The writer of Hebrews writes to you and I, to the faithful, we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable. I couldn't resist. See, as God moves, as he speaks over everything that he has made, the heavens and the earth are shaking. God is displacing the kingdoms of the earth for the substance of his kingdom from heaven. Like two tectonic plates rubbing against one another. There is a physical and there is a spiritual violence that happens as the kingdoms of men and of this world and of darkness are being displaced by the advancing and ever-increasing kingdom of our God. Our letter was written in an era where human life was expendable. Do we live in one of those eras now? We'd like to think not. We live in an era where Rome persecuted their troublemakers on roadside displays, much like billboards. In just about every major city that was conquered by Caesar's so-called new era of peace, his new world order. Peace, peace, you say peace, but nowhere do I find it. Their appetite for death was insatiable. People were killed just for the mere sport of it, as an entertainment of large crowds. It's into this great new world, into this reality of the world that Paul and his friends were living in. This is what business looked like in their day. 
this section of the letter is to convince his friends that whatever happens to him in his present imprisonment, it won't mean that everything has gone terribly wrong. What happens, he must take comfort knowing that I am at peace. I'm filled with joy and anticipation. Whether it's to be with Christ or to come and be with you. But I want you to know this. Death is not the end. Death does not have the final say. But there is a resurrection with Jesus on the other side of the grave. In February this year, Debbie's cousin Peter passed away at the age of 46. The obituary read that he passed away with his family by his side. In truth, his father Tom and his mother Kathleen and his younger sister Pamela had been coming alongside his bed for the better part of 27 years. See, Peter's military career had tragically been cut short when he was physically thrown from a motor vehicle in an accident that resulted in traumatic brain injury. A more involved story would tell you that after coming to a near end of Peter's monies from a historic legal settlement, both Tom and Kathleen put everything of their lives careers on the line to start the first of its kind home for the brain injured right there in the home province and right there in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. As it turned out, necessity demanded that the only way that they could support Peter with any kind of a life was to build and staff a home with professionals and people who could love him that they also had to house three other patients suffering with traumatic brain injury. You could say they pooled their resources. Now, eventually, Peter's house would hold upwards of ten long-term patients. One of those clients was, this, was a high-profile gal, a young Arlene McNeil, who was critically wounded during a that saw three others killed during a robbery at the Sydney Rivers McDonald restaurant in 92. I don't know if you remember that. Some of you from the East Coast. Arlene passed away just last year at the age of 46. Alongside Peter's gravesite and standing there with Debbie's family, I should have I, I took some comfort knowing that Peter never faced his challenges alone. But like our loving Father who surrounds us, I believe Peter was empowered and he was comforted by a family who loved him, who never gave up on him, and who quite literally moved heaven and earth to make a home for him there. In the course of that challenge, a whole world of hope was opened up for countless others and for their families. Parents, think of the magnitude of the people that are touched. I went on to share that all of our 
shaped by Peter's life. You find a courageous love of a family that didn't give up on him. Did they do it perfect? No. I will say that to you without a doubt. They're just like us. Truly struggling. Not the stuff of their testimony. They never gave up. The graveside are finished by sharing with some confidence and peace that Peter had ultimately found his healing and his eternal home with his Father in heaven. Folks, when we personally risk and we put ourselves out there for one another, we have no idea how many lives are literally being affected and shaped by that single. that I'll remain alive, all right, so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through you. At its core, Paul's letter comes from a heart that has been moved and comforted by the gift of love and prayers and from the financial support extended to him by his church family in Philippi. He wants his friends to be encouraged and to join him in the celebration, but especially when he comes to see them again. And he's convinced that he will. Paul wants his friends and he wants us to take full advantage of today. What is God giving you today to live up? Is Christ with you? Yes, that should be your answer. Paul wants us to take full advantage of the time that we have here. Paul wants us to be very certain that we don't waste any of the trials that we've suffered and we will suffer trials. But he wants us to embrace the certainty of Christ Jesus, of the King of His unshakable kingdom that welcomes all of us fully in. We are receiving and have received a kingdom that is unshakable. Yet regardless of how people are seeing you, Jesus wants you to know that he sees you. Jesus sees you. Yet regardless of whatever trials and obstacles you may be facing right now, regardless of whatever failures you're enduring, whatever obstacles, irregardless of health, whatever season of mental fatigue and trial has been dogging you, Jesus wants you to know that you're not alone. He stands with you. He's with you and he'll never be inside.